All right, let's return together to the epistle to the Romans. Romans chapter 8. I'm excited to be back here at least somewhat this morning. Romans chapter 8. We're going to begin by reading the first four verses of that epistle. If you'll stand when you get there, we'll read it together. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walked not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemns sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, once again, as we open up thy precious word, Lord, we're aware of your desire to make this known to us, yet we're also aware of the deep waters that we enter, so much that we do not see. Lord, even the most enlightened and instructing of us is just a little child in thy sight. Father, I pray that you bless us as we behold this passage this morning. Father, you don't shrink back from telling us the full brunt of the wickedness of the nature that we still possess. But just as directly as you tell us about that, you tell us about a way to find victory. I pray you'd help us to grasp both sides of that truth. I pray you'd bless us, Lord, as we walk through this glorious and wonderful chapter to see something of the magnitude that's here, to see something of our glorious position in Christ for what it really is. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't recommend paying <clears throat> constant attention to every sort of news that's out there, but if you've been paying attention at all to what's going on in the news around the world, you cannot help but be impressed with the stresses and strains of an uncertain world that we are increasingly seeing, uh, just like the Lord told us that we would. The U.S. presidential election cycle has got to be one of the strangest ones, at least in recent memory. We are facing now the bizarre possibility that both major U.S. presidential candidates will be facing indictment for serious matters of integrity and character right around the time of the general election. There's this growing <clears throat> anti-establishment and anti-globalism sort of fighting back against the way things are. And believe me, I'm no globalist, but we have to concede that a lot of the anti-globalist is just as wicked as the globalist philosophy that's out there and that's why some of it is culminated in Donald Trump being the standard bearer for the GOP what a shocking thing that has become this anti-global sentiment is what was behind the recent so-called Brexit vote this past week where the United Kingdom shocked most of the world by voting by narrow margin to remove itself from the European Union and the leader of their nation stepped down because he himself does not even support that decision 
And of course that sent shockwaves in economies across the world as investors panicked at the prospect of widespread recession sweeping across the globe. And then back on U.S. soil, you have our own Senate recently approving a bill that would force young ladies for the first time in American history to sign up for the draft and make it a legal requirement to force our daughters into the front lines of combat should the need arise. And then most of you have heard the day after tomorrow in the state of California, the Judiciary Committee will be voting on Senate Bill 1146, which if that is passed into law, will effectively take away the religious freedoms of nearly every single Christian college in the entire state. It will affect who they hire. It will affect what they believe. They will have to actually submit their beliefs before the state for approval. It will affect who uses what restroom, yes, even on the campuses of Christian colleges. Well, I have no doubt that if this passes into law, that the litigation surrounding it will eventually reach the Supreme Court. And what happens there, we don't know. But we've all seen historically that the moral depravity, which often gains a foothold in California courts, often proves the demise of the rest of the country. And that's not just true of that state, it's true of others as well. And so two central certainties come back to mind as we look at what's happening in this crumbling world around us. The certainty number one we're brought back to is the only hope for mankind is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not government. It's not courts. It's this inward transformation wrought by the Holy Ghost that we refer to as the new birth that leads to the outward transformation which then transforms society around us and the only hope for fallen rebels who call good evil and evil good is the salvation that's found in Christ. But here's the other certainty that's brought before our mind again. The fact that there are no certainties on this present world. There are no foundations for us strictly coming from the world that is around us. We look for the time when the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ and when He shall reign forever and ever and set the record straight. Sometimes I wonder as I look at Romans chapter 8 if we are entering a time in American history where this passage, particularly the last eight or nine verses, is going to have to become more precious to God's people on U.S. soil than it ever has in the past. Someone says, well, there's been... A conflict and uncertainty before, that is true. Those whom we generally refer to as America's greatest generation, well, remember that day that will live in infamy, December 7th, 1941, when America was drawn into the horrors of the Second World War. And we faced the very real possibility that we were seeing an enemy which we could not defeat by sheer determination and firepower. But you know, at least we were clear on who the enemy was. It was sadistic dictators across the world who would take away our national sovereignty, who would strip away our God-given rights that are written in the U.S. Constitution, like speech and religion and press, and change the freedoms as we've always known them and which our forefathers fought so hard to protect. They knew who the enemy was. But you know, today there's another world war that's raging. 
but you hear very little about it from the media. It's not a war that's being fought with the blitzkrieg of cannons and artillery shells and rifle power and bombs. It's a war that's being fought with the blitzkrieg of satanic agendas, liberal ideas, legislation from judicial benches, redefinition of historically understood terms, the trampling of individual freedom for the sake of political correctness, and the attempt to crack down on any and all who refuse to think and speak like the ungodly masses and like the growing power of the state. You know, it's not so clear who the real enemy is today. I'm looking at predominantly Bible-taught Christians, and you would say, oh, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. The enemy's not the liberal, it's not the democrat, it's not the atheist, ultimately. It's the spiritual forces that move them and that is bringing the world towards the destruction of the great day of God Almighty. We know that. But in the eyes of most Americans, who the enemy is is not so clear. And what we're watching happen in our generation is an age where the true Bible-believing Christian is very quickly becoming public enemy number one. They are the dogmatist. They're the legalist. They're the misogynist. They're the homophobe. They're the haters. I wonder if any of you caught that article in the New York Times quoting a Republican congressman who I think ill-advisedly tweeted some verses after the slaughtering of the gay bar in Orlando. And he quoted some verses out of Romans 1 on God's view of sodomy. I personally don't think that was the right time to do it. But here's what the New York Times said. They said he quoted verses calling for the execution of homosexuals. Is that true? No, it is not. But you see, that's the type of rhetoric that's starting to spread the globe and very likely as our children grow up. The America that we born, were born into is largely dead. And Christians may become the chief enemies of the state. But I want to remind you that the epistle to the Romans was also penned by one who is labeled an enemy of the state. For much the same reasons, the prevailing note of triumph that we find in chapter 8 is not the result of some major victory in the courtroom. Now don't get me wrong, if we have the right and the ability to fight things in the court, we should. But that's not where our final hope lies. The triumph here in Romans 8 is not because their political party won an election or because the economy was booming or because the church at Rome had just finished their new multi-purpose facility debt-free. Now, none of those things are bad. But they're all bad if that's the source of our joy and hope. And keep in mind, these words were penned by one who bore in his body the marks of the Lord Jesus. This epistle was written by hands that had been whipped and beaten and scarred for the sake of the cause of Christ. This epistle was written in an empire where each citizen was required, at least outwardly, to treat Caesar as some sort of deity and, if needed, to prove it with a pinch of incense for worship. 
It was a culture where Christians were fed to the mouths of wild beasts for spectator sport with children like this watching on. Entertainment. These words were penned to a group of believers huddled in this filthy capital city surrounded by some four million heathen idolaters that were covering up their inward spiritual bankruptcy by a constant stream of culture, wealth, education, refinement, entertainment, and pleasure. But you know, the reason this victory song is so powerful and timeless is because it draws our attention away from the shifting sands of mankind's affairs. It draws our attention away from our own feeble attempt at conquering our indwelling fleshly nature. Many of you have found there's this world war I mentioned raging without. There's also an inward world war raging within, isn't there? You have found how depraved and wretched you still are, even as a Christian. The battle's not entirely out there and external. It's largely an internal one that we face also. Romans 8 kind of reminds me of Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. Where the psalmist says, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills, from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord who made heaven and earth. I'll look above this barren land. Now perhaps you've read in your own time that this chapter is widely regarded by just about every reputable commentator as the high water mark of the entire epistle to the Romans. In fact, many have called it the greatest chapter in all the New Testament for a Christian. Once again, that's largely opinion-based. I realize that. But it does say volumes about the content that is contained in these verses. One esteemed German commentator, for instance, remarked that the Holy Scriptures was a ring and the epistle to Romans was its stone then chapter 8 would be the sparkling point of the diamond. Another is observed, we enter this chapter with no condemnation. We exit this chapter with no separation, and in between those two, all things work together for good for them that love God and them that are the called according to His purpose. Well, this morning, we're just going to have time to give really a brief introduction to the chapter as a whole, and Lord willing, in two weeks, we're going to get into the uh, individual verses. But one thing I do hope that is drummed into our heads repeatedly as we go through this epistle is the tremendous progression of spiritual logic that really marks most of Paul's writings, but particularly the book of Romans. Many times in Christian circles we frown upon the word logic. The problem with human logic is that it's operating without all the facts. But when all the facts are included from the divine side, God makes perfect sense and so does following Him. That's why the appeal in Romans 12.1 is your reasonable or logikos, logical service in light of who God is. Someone has made the statement that if you don't find Paul logical, you're not understanding him correctly. Boy, do I agree with that statement. We've been given these successive building blocks, carefully laid masterfully planned and aimed at bringing us up into completion in our lives as Christians, not just in the sweet by and by, but in the here and now, in this present evil world. 
You'll recall in chapters 1 through 3, Paul had begun by declaring his fervent desire to meet these beloved believers face to face because he'd not yet been able to do so. And while he's declaring a submission to the will of God, there's also a note maybe of frustration in his voice that he had tried to meet them repeatedly and he'd been providentially prevented from doing so on numerous occasions. And aren't you and I glad that he was? Because that very providential blocking of his trip to Rome is what gave you and I this letter. Can we question God's ways? Among other things, he tells them he's ready to preach the gospel not only to the Jews and the Greeks and the barbarians, but he says he's ready to preach the gospel to them as well, to the church. Now one of the things that shows is it ought to be the Christian's desire to have a growing, deeper understanding of the gospel message itself as a part of our Christian maturity. We say gospel message, we don't mean five verses in a superstitious prayer. We mean the content that's lined out going through here, the chapters of the book of Romans. And keep in mind, this book was written to a New Testament assembly to read in their Lord's Day meetings to people who knew they were sinners, knew who Christ was, and knew they were free from condemnation. The gospel message begins with the righteousness of God as the Creator said in stark contrast to the willful, stubborn rebellion of depraved creatures and the wrath of God that's currently being poured out in response. And so the bulk of chapters 1 through 3 is bringing all of humanity of all classes, Jew, Gentile, religious or not, under condemnation for the express purpose of showing them that they must have a righteousness that comes from outside of themselves. And of course, this righteousness is freely given in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we see something there that's so crucial to our understanding of the Gospel. God both frees the sinner from the bondage, he forgives and takes away the penalty of sin, but He does so in a way where He retains His character. And so much of what passes as the Gospel today leaves that out. God forgives you on the basis of just mercy. Don't forget this, salvation is on the basis of justice as well. It's not circumventing His wrath, it's because it is finished and it has been fulfilled. And so God is both just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Chapter 4, the natural question arises, well, what about in Old Testament times? What about before the cross? And Paul cuts right to the chase with the beginnings of the Jewish nation, the man Abram, and with the greatest king in Israel's history, the man David, and illustrates with Abraham, clear back in Genesis 15, he had to have a righteousness that was not his own. Remember in that chapter, constantly we see the words impute, reckon, count, impute. It was a transferring of account. It was a giving a righteousness to one who had nothing. And of course he's showing by proxy that salvation has always been by faith through grace, always the same way. Having that settled that, the discussion moves beyond justification onto sanctification, our Christian growth, chapters 5 through 8. And we see that God doesn't merely save us to stagnate. As a loving and tenderly Father, He cannot remain content for us to remain in spiritual infancy. And He's very desirous and zealous that we would move beyond those basic building blocks and on to maturity 
in our Christian life. So chapter 5 is largely taken up with the issue of federal headship. The fact that God condemned all men in Adam, passed the death sentence out, means he can also pass life in Christ to all who are in him. And he shows all of humanity is either in Adam or in Christ, in the flesh or in the spirit, one of the two. And the issue is, who is your father? Moving on to chapter 6, the key word there is the word sin. Remember the central question, how can I stop committing evil? In spite of the presence of the sin nature, I still possess. Chapter 7 presents a higher problem. Chapter 7, we see Paul's personal crisis, and it's his most intensely personal chapter in all of the epistles, where he sets himself up as, as exhibit A in this inward spiritual struggle, first as a Pharisee and then as a saved man, as a real Christian. And the central issue is how can I do good, considering the shocking, wicked, perverse old nature that exists undiminished and unsanctified within me. And of course, sprinkled throughout these chapters, there's several positional truths, things that God has declared to be true concerning us. We have peace with God. We stand in grace. We have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. We are in Christ, not Adam. We are dead to sin. We are dead to the law or law principle. Those are positional things that God has declared to be true that we have to by faith appropriate and live according to. Now, last time we were in Romans, we covered the last verses of chapter 7. And I do hope most of us remember that well. The end of chapter 7 paints a heartfelt and blunt and very ugly picture of the sin nature that you and I still possess as the Lord's people. And the Lord points this out to us for the express purpose of bringing us into the contents of Romans 8. I do believe a great wide swath of conservative American Christianity is ignorant of the real wickedness of the nature they still possess. So Paul really says a great deal aimed at exposing this so we can see ourselves for what we are. Ignorance of what God declares concerning our nature is certainly not bliss, but continual bondage, and it's only the truth that's going to set us free. Our sin nature passes into our Christian life undiminished in power and influence. It's positionally been slaughtered. Its chains have been broken. But as to its moral character, as to its residual effect, till the day you die off of this planet, the possibility is still there that you can yield to the nature dwelling within. We saw our sin nature can appear dormant for a time, and then it will spring up in fury when it's provoked, and it causes us to wonder if I even belong to Christ at all. I haven't lost my temper like that in years. Maybe your flesh wasn't provoked like that in years either. I see the attention turns inward. Our sin nature actually will cause us to sin more as a result of hearing the law of God. That's its response. Remember that? It hears the law and it stirs it up like the dust in an old wood shop. It begins to choke life out of you. We see the sin nature cannot be sanctified. It cannot be defanged. It cannot be slammed in some corner. It cannot be made subject to the law of God. It cannot change. 
But you've been given a new nature that you can yield to and to repudiate and not walk after the dictates of your own sinful flesh. Remember that principle Paul says, I find a law, a general principle, when I would do good, evil is present with me. So many wonder, how come when I get up to sing a special, my head's filled with some of the most vile thoughts. I don't want them. Why is it when I sit here and sing holy, 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 I'm tempted to think unholy, unholy, unholy? Well, it's for the reason given here. The closer you get to doing a real work for God, the more your nature is going to rise up and protest. And God's not telling you that to discourage you. He's telling you that so you expect it and you know how to fight it. Paul's question, verse 18, how to perform that which is good, I find now. You see, his question there is, how can I fix this problem? But during his great crisis, his question changes from how to who. It's no longer how can I, it's who is going to give me power over this death within me. And you know the same is true with us regarding sanctification. You think when you came to Christ, you may not have been cognizant of it at the time, but your question there had to go from how to who. You see, at first your struggle was when you saw how depraved you were, what's the common response for most people? I need to start going to church. I need to do better. How am I going to fix myself? But then they're brought to see you're not. And then the question becomes, who is going to give me a righteousness not my own? You know, in sanctification, it goes from how am I going to stop getting angry? How am I going to stop this? How am I going to stop that? To who is going to give me the deliverance? Because I can't deliver myself. And it's this bitter internal struggle and the humbling realization that even as Christians, in and of ourselves, we are no good, we have no power. I mentioned last time, keep this in mind, the new nature you've been given wants to honor God. That's all the new nature can do, but it still has no power. Power has to come from another source. And this internal struggle is what opens the gateway into the glories of chapter 8. I think it's important to stop for a minute and notice the particular emphasis on the various members of the Trinity as we have gone through this epistle. Back in the introduction, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we see all three members of the Trinity mentioned there in quick succession. Father, Son, Holy Spirit in their respective roles. But following that, once Paul begins his treatise on the contents of the gospel in chapters 1 through 3, you find God the Father mentioned around 50 times, and none of the others mentioned until chapter 3 in verse 21. You see, it's God the Father who takes center stage in the issue of pointing out man's utter wickedness as opposed to his righteousness. But then there, but now, a righteousness from God without the laws manifested and we're introduced to Him, the person of God the Son, with a righteousness that comes from outside of ourself. Chapter 4, there's the discourse in Old Testament salvation, but then at the end of 4 and all the way through 6, now it's the Son of God 
who takes center stage. Now it's the second person of the Trinity that we have peace with God and access to grace through Him. God has shown the most magnificent display of divine love or agape through Him. We are saved from wrath through Him. He is the channel through which the grace of God is dispensed. We are under His headship in Christ. We are baptized unto His death, crucified with Him, raised with Him, and alive through Him. Chapter 7, Paul's internal struggle. There's scarcely a mention to any members of the Trinity because Paul is delineating what's going on in here. Then we get to chapter 8. The key word in chapter 6 was sin. Key word in chapter 7 was law. Key word in chapter 8, what's that? It's the word spirit. So far, the Holy Spirit has only been mentioned in the introduction and a passing reference in chapter 5, verse 5. That's it. All of a sudden in chapter 8, he's suddenly mentioned 20 times in the first 27 verses of this incredible chapter. And listen, that in itself is incredibly instructive. One of the tragedies, I'd say probably in the last 50 or 60 years, that has happened with so much of the wrong teaching concerning the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of pneumatology has taken a beating at the hands of a number of uh, religious nutballs. A lot of these so-called revivals and all the ungodly nonsense that occurs in the name of religion that they attribute to the Holy Spirit has been a disaster. But let me tell you another disaster that's come out of this. I firmly believe there's been a backlash reaction in a lot of fundamental churches in the last 50 years as a whole to where going the other way, we almost don't want to know the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity. Vast sections of Christianity are largely ignorant of who He is and what it is that He does. And lest we fall into the error of the charismatics, we don't talk about Him, we don't emphasize Him, we don't mention Him. We have a trinity, but it's really a diunity in a lot of our minds. I wonder, I wonder if we, let's say we just took a pop quiz this morning, and we all, all of us got three sheets of paper, one for each member of the trinity. You write down everything you know about the Father. You write down everything you know about the Son. Write down everything you know about the Holy Spirit. Which one would probably have the least on it? I dare say a lot of what we know about the Holy Spirit is what He's not. He's not some electrical force just sort of flying through the stratosphere. He's not the influence that causes people to bark like dogs and dance like chickens in the name of Christianity. But who is He? You know, there's no question the Holy Spirit plays a massive role in illuminating the lost and bringing them to salvation. But He's largely behind the scenes in those roles. A person can be largely ignorant of the Holy Spirit's role and still come under conviction because it's God the Father that takes the central role. It's His righteousness, it's His justice, it's His goodness that are exalted, which brings conviction in the first place, when it comes to salvation. 
Yes, it's the Holy Spirit that regenerates, but the central object lifted up is who? It's God the Son. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know, when it comes to our sanctification, we cannot remain in ignorance about the person and work of the Holy Spirit and grow to maturity. It's not possible. I wonder if we pose the question this morning, which member of the Trinity or members is set forth as an object of faith in Scripture? There's a question that will make you think. You know, with respect to salvation, primarily the Son, but the Father's also mentioned, the Holy Spirit's not mentioned as the object of faith in response or, or in reference to salvation. I'm not saying He's not there, just saying He's not mentioned in that context. But when it comes to the deeper truth concerning victory over the sin nature, claiming the mighty promises of Christ and walking in the Spirit, it's there in respect to sanctification that all of a sudden an awareness and an emphasis and a, and a deliberate dependence upon the third person of the Trinity by faith is brought into view. It's really no surprise after the contents of Romans 7 that a lengthy discussion regarding the Holy Spirit is what's going to come next. I have to admit, as we go through this chapter, I don't know how in-depth of an exegesis we're going to do or how long we're going to spend in Romans 8. I mean, Romans 8 to me, it's like looking downstream in a very large river and it just splits off into all these branches. And every one of them you could follow downstream quite a long distance for good reason. There's so many topics introduced here, so much said in these verses regarding the Holy Spirit that we could spend a great deal of time on. Isn't it true much that's said about the Holy Ghost remains kind of nebulous in our minds? Oh, it sounds spiritual to talk about it, but to actually define it and understand what it means experientially, well, that's something different. Let me just mention some of the things mentioned here coming up. There's walking in the Spirit and spiritual mindedness. There's the indwelling of the Spirit and the effect of it. There's the resurrection power of the Spirit. There's the mortification of the deeds of the body through the Spirit. There's the leading of the Spirit. There's the adoption of the Spirit. There's the inner witness of the Spirit. Now, how do you define that one? There's the intercession of the Spirit of God on our behalf, among other things. A great deal covered. And we're just going to finish this morning. I'm just going to give a very brief outline of the chapter, and then we'll be done as we introduce it. But the first 27 verses, I've already mentioned, are taken up with the subject of the Holy Spirit's work in the life of the Christian. Verses 28 through 39 give the basis, the real basis, of real assurance. Verses 1 through 27, you'll notice verse 1 begins with no condemnation. The condemnation, if you follow that concept throughout, condemnation is essentially God's death sentence. Now there is some discussion on why does this chapter begin with that? I mean, I thought that was dealt with back in chapter 3 and 4. I thought we're beyond that topic, so why is somebody in Paul's shoes told that coming into chapter 8? I think considering the nature of that battle in chapter 7, we need a reminder again. Tell me, what is it that pummels your mind? When you are fighting with the fact that you are still a stubborn, sinful wretch, even as a Christian, 
When you find even in your holiest moments, you still have things pop into your head that you'd be ashamed of if everybody here knew. That you're still fighting battles with the flesh. That you're, you're, they're raging within. And the devil comes along to you and he's trying to tell you God is furious with you. He may have forgiven you the other thousand times. But now you've crossed the line. And see, the way this is structured is not one single condemnation. It's a reminder that despite this hideous struggle you have with the nature within, listen, if you are in Christ, not one hair of your head can be singed. Not one digit of your body can be justly punished. Look how he describes this person. In Christ. I wish I had a tongue to tell how glorious of a, of a statement that is. Here's part of what that means. If you are a Christian, the day that Jesus Christ can be hurled into hell to burn is the day that God will touch you with His wrath. But since that will never happen, it cannot happen with you. No condemnation, not because of your performance or your sincerity, but because of Christ's work on the cross and His willingness to save and he defines these people as those who walk not after the flesh and after the spirit. And oh boy, does guilt jump up. What's my life characterized by? It's a good question to self-examine once in a while. But it's talking about those who are on this process of growth, of learning to walk in the spirit and not obey the dictates of the flesh. I mentioned last time, if there's a war within, if you find you have a nature constantly fighting your sin nature, and sometimes it feels like World War III going on within you. That's one of the finest proofs that you indeed do belong to Christ. Because He's implanted that nature. You didn't steal that blessing from Him. And see, there's no condemnation because the law of the Spirit of life, the principle of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. It's broken the chains. It's taken away the penalty. It's broken the dominion. I'm not under it. But God, in order to do that, sent His Son in the flesh to condemn sin and to do something else in verse 4. Being freed from our debits and demerits, our debt that we owed, being given a new nature, God's desire now is that the character of the law would be fulfilled in us as we learn dependence upon the third person of the Trinity to learn to walk in the Spirit. Verses 5 through 10, we see this contrast between those that are spiritually minded and those that are carnally minded. And once again, the discussion comes up. Is this talking about two kinds of Christian? Or is it talking about the saved and the lost? I think application can be made to both. But I think unquestionably what's primarily in view is not two types of Christian, but somebody who is still dead in their sins and one who's not. Here's why. Look at some of the terminology used to describe the person called carnal. They are after the flesh. They are carnally minded. That means not spiritual. They are at enmity with God. They're not subject to Him. They cannot be. They're dominated by their fallen nature. They cannot please God. And look at verse 9. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. 
He's not saying flesh and spirit is something you're in and out of. He's saying I, you're either in one of the two. Maybe you've said it as a Christian. Maybe you've heard people say it. Oh, when I did that, I was in the flesh. That's actually not true, according to this passage. You as a Christian are never in the flesh. You may walk in the flesh, but you're never in it. That's never your standing. And if it is your standing to be in the flesh, you don't belong to Christ. That's the dichotomy he's laying out here. Versus, well, actually, if you look at that conversely, though, as a believer, we can have life and peace. We can be subject to God. And guess what? You can please Him. You ever feel like you can't please God? I think all of us do. But I am convinced to the real Christian, you have those moments come upon you and all you see is your failure and all you see is I'm not pleasing God anywhere. I would submit to you if you really belong to Christ, you are pleasing God in areas you aren't even aware of. As you grow in Him, there are automatic decisions you make, there are standards you have set in place, there's a sort of autopilot that He's building into your life by the Holy Ghost, by your knowledge of the Scriptures, and so many of these everyday decisions are pleasing Him, but it's the work of the accuser of the brethren to tell you the glass is half empty, not half full, right? Verse 11 and 12, the Spirit of God dwells in you the days coming when He will also raise this mortal fallen body of yours just like He did with Christ. And because He's going to do that, we're debtors not to the flesh, but to live according to what He is making us and what He will ultimately make us. To live according to God. Verse 14, we read about the leading of the Spirit. Those that are led of the Spirit are the sons of God. But you know the emphasis on that is not those that are aware that they're hearing His voice and doing it. It's actually the emphasis isn't on you and I at all there. The emphasis is on the fact that if you belong to Christ, the Holy Spirit of God is leading you, even when you're not aware of it. It's having an awareness of His ability to lead far more than my own ability to hear. How many of you have found sometimes prayer becomes stressful because you're trying so hard to hear, 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 and you've lost sight of the fact that you are led and indwelt by the Spirit of God, and you've lost that sense of rest that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. If you're a son of God, you are led by a Spirit. Yes, we grow in the ability to hear, but the emphasis here is saying... Rest in the fact He does lead you. It's one of the ministries that He does carry out. Verse 15 through 17, We haven't received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but the spirit of adoption, which is quite the opposite. What's the spirit of bondage? Fear grips your soul. You're worried there's some loophole in God's plan. I know He said whosoever will, but maybe He didn't mean me. I know we said it is finished, but maybe not quite in my case. You see, the spirit of bondage is constantly in fear and terrors, and it's just like Paul told Timothy, God has not given you the spirit of fear. It doesn't come from Him. What God has given you is the spirit of adoption. I heard a story long ago that's always stuck in my head. You know how children can be so cruel to each other. Little orphan girls adopted and she begins to grow up and 
she goes to school and some of the people in town knew she was adopted. She didn't. They began to mock her. You orphan. Your parents didn't want you. Of course, she comes home broken and asks her parents if it's true. Her dad said, yeah, it's true. But here's what you go tell them. Next day at school, here comes the mockers. She said, you know something? Your parents didn't have a choice. They were stuck with you. My parents walked into that orphanage, and out of all the children there, they picked me. Think about adoption, what that means. God picked you out of the orphanage of wickedness, knowing full well what you were and what you were not. And one of the things the Spirit of God does is work in your heart a grasping of this concept of adoption. I am His and He is mine. It's not just that I'm born of God, it's that I'm chosen by Him through adoption and eternally His, and that cannot change. Verses 19 through 25, for the present time, all of creation is groaning and travailing, waiting for the day of redemption when God sets the record straight. And boy, do we see that around us. But it's not just the creation, it's us as well. If you've been given this first fruit of the Spirit, you know something of what it means to groan within yourself. For you to be changed into His image, for the world to be set right, for a city where righteousness dwells. Verse 26 and 27, we're introduced to another tremendous ministry of the Holy Ghost, and that is intercessor. It's not just Christ. And here He takes our pathetic, disjointed prayers, He straightens them out for us. You ever have those deep, dark nights of soul? Where your prayers aren't full of verbiage? You just sort of crumple down before the Lord, and all you can say is, Help. The Holy Spirit takes those groanings. And he sorts them out. And he makes intercession for you according to the will of God. We behold again the third person of the Trinity in his specific ministry on our behalf. And then we get to verse 28 through 39, this tremendous victory song of assurance. I dare say a good many Christians have Romans 8:28 memorized. But I think that's a sad thing, and let me tell you why. I think a lot of Christians don't have the next several verses committed to memory too. And you cannot understand Romans 8.28 without what follows in the train of logic. He says, we know that all things work together for good. How do we know? What does it mean to be the called according to His purpose? Well, that's answered in the following verses. That God's central purpose for you in your life boils down to one thing, to conform you to the image of Christ. That's His definition of good. And you can be sure anything He lets into your life is going to be according to that definition. And so it's by eyes of faith we look at trials, we look at difficulties, we look at setbacks, and we say, oh, this isn't good according to the human sphere of logic on a horizontal level, but it's sure good from the divine standpoint because that's all he can give, because that's a central purpose concerning me. Why, why? What's the reason you can be sure he's going to accomplish it? Here's why. Because the entire process from beginning to end is his. Now I realize we get into issues of sovereignty and free will. We need to approach that with our shoes off. 
Sometimes I think there's a lot of carnal bantering on that, and it's something we have to approach with holy reverence. And we may not all agree on every jot and tittle. You know I'm no Calvinist. But I will say this. Those who try to redefine God's election, God's choosing down to the human level, completely rob the end of Romans 8 of the massive force of what's being said. Do we understand that? The whole boldness laid out here is not because of human nature or human sincerity or I love Jesus so much, everything's going to turn out well. The whole focus from here through the end of the chapter is what God has declared and what God will do and therefore why you can stand. I mean, you look at this chain of verse beginning in verse 29, for whom he did foreknow. I'm not going to say much on it now. Many times foreknowledge is defined as omniscience. Foreknowledge means God knew you choose Jesus and therefore he chose you. That is heresy. It really is. God's foreknowledge is not the same as omniscience. God's foreknowledge is a determinative identifying knowledge. Now the content of what he knows we're not told. But you trace the concept of God's knowing people through the scriptures and you'll find it's a whole lot more than God just reacting to your brilliant choice to choose Jesus. Yes, mankind chooses Christ. Yes, man's responsible for his own destiny, for his part. But don't ever lose sight of the fact that behind all of that, the real basis of assurance is not your sincerity or your choice or your tears. The real foundation of real assurance in the Christian life is God's choosing and not yours. That's the whole purpose of teaching election. It's not to include, exclude people. It belongs to the Christian because it shows them before you choose Christ, guess what? He chose you. And the whole work, beginning to end, is God's. Whom He did foreknow, He predestinated. Whom He did predestinate, He called. Whom He called, He justified. Whom He justified, He glorified. And notice it's, I'm not looking at glorified people, but He says it past tense as though it's already done in God's sight. He will glorify you. And based on that whole process that God Himself began and God Himself will bring to completion, now we have these questions beginning in verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? It's not God's for me because I chose Him. It's because God chose me and the whole process is His. Who can possibly stand against me? And heaven or hell are in between. Verse 32. He that gave up the second person of the Trinity to somehow be separated from Him, He spared not His Son, but gave Him to be slaughtered and somehow turned His back. And I have no idea how it all works. But if God gave the greatest and the best to spare us, how can He not give you other good things that you need in the Christian life? Verse 33, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Those whom God has chosen? Who's going to lay anything to their account that's going to stick? Why? Because it's God that's declared them righteous. Are you going to fight the gavel out of His hand and pound it down again with a different judgment? Not hardly. Who is He that condemneth? Who's he that's going to sentence you into even a moment in hell? 
It's Christ that died. It's He that suffered and said it's finished. He didn't go to hell, but He did suffer the agonies of the wrath of God on your behalf. And He says, who is going to dare say that wasn't sufficient? Now you go to hell. Nobody. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Same question. You see, it's kind of like this. Picture there's two kinds of people. Here they are walking along, and here comes the storm clouds. And person number one, depending on how low and how black those clouds are, it affects his entire outlook. And here's his friend. Clouds roll in, and first guy says, Oh boy, look at those clouds. And he says, let me tell you something. I can't see it. But I'll tell you that infinitely higher than those clouds, the sun is still shining full strength. And I'll tell you another thing. Those clouds couldn't even exist without what the sun is currently doing. And let me tell you another thing. Just as surely as those clouds rolled in, they're going to depart. That was what gave Paul such boldness to say what he says here. It was beyond the clouds, it was unto the hills on what God has declared concerning him. He almost had what John Wesley called a holy swagger. It wasn't human pride, but he was saying he had such boldness in what God had said that he could go with Spurgeon and take the slenderest statement on the blood of Christ and swing across all the pit of hell unharmed and unafraid. Because if God began the work, if God will finish the work, no set of circumstances, not setbacks, not finances, not injury, not death, not fear, not changes, not things in heaven or things in hell, and take away the sunshine of God. And see, Paul could look right through it and see the sun shining still, full strength, by faith. And that's exactly where our affections have to lie. We look around us at what's happening in our country. Again, I'm no prophet. I don't know what all is going to happen. But I do think being familiar with this is going to prepare us well for what lies ahead. The writing's on the wall. Things are changing very, very rapidly. But thank God, our confidence, our joy doesn't lie in what we're going to accomplish. It doesn't lie in how spiritual I am or you are. It lies in the settled fact of what God has declared and His unchanging love. There is no separation from that. Now we're going to stop there, but Lord willing, in the next two weeks from today, uh, we will be into the actual verses of Romans 8. But let's pray. Father, I know we've just barely touched on so many of these great themes. Father, I pray you give us understanding as we go forward. Lord, I know I look at the magnitude of what's here. I get so frustrated I can't explain it better. I can't understand more myself. And my heart can't burn even hotter with these truths. Lord, help us to be more and more a people that looks beyond the circumstance and the temporal. Set our gaze and affection upon Thy holy throne. Thy determinate counsel. Father, you have, if we are in Christ, you've chosen us. For our part, we've responded, we've believed, we've 
taken Christ as Savior. But yet we give you the glory for your part. That we love you because you first loved us. That if you didn't move on our behalf, there's none that seeketh after God. And we thank you, Lord, for the great and precious promises you give us. Help us to behold them. Help us, Lord, to be more familiar with the blessed Holy Spirit. A proper emphasis concerning him. In Jesus' name, amen.